Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Man, you can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We've spent several chapters looking at what Paul had to say about the the, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and how they had rejected the gospel and how they had all these privileges, the, the law and the covenants, and, and, and God had sent messengers their way and given them opportunity, but they rejected the gospel. And then he moves into chapter 10, and I, I really believe that the title says what he says in chapter 11, God is not through with Israel. It may sound like it since they rejected the gospel and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, to us, but God is not through with Israel. We're going to look at all 36 verses today. Are you ready? That's about a verse a minute. But what I'm going to do is uh, move quickly through this first section and then focus in on what I believe is the heart of what, what we need to hear for us today. Paul gives five examples here. In this passage to show that God's not through with the, with the people of Israel. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Let's just stop and look at verse 1 for a minute there. Here's the first, the first evidence, the first demonstration that God's not through. He uses his own conversion. So number one, Paul's conversion is proof that God is not through with Israel. Paul says he gives his Jewish credentials in, in uh, other places in Philippians. He talks about being born a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, uh, an expert in the law, zealous toward God. And most, most believe that when Paul uses himself as an example here, he's, he's showing here was a person who had everything in the law, yet had rejected the gospel, but then ultimately received the gospel. And he's reminding them, in essence, God did it with me, he can do it with the whole nation. Some say that Paul uses himself as an example because of his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, and, and God's going to bring a dramatic conversion to the people of Israel one day when he comes again, when Jesus comes back. When, I'm not sure which one of those, but I do know this, that, that Paul says, he did it for me, he can do it for you. Second truth here, the second evidence or proof that God's not through, the remnant. Number two, the remnant is proof that God is not through with Israel. Look at verse two with me. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Remember the story of Elijah, how he defeated the prophets uh, at Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, and, and then he, he felt like he was all alone, and everybody, God had, there, were, there was no one else standing except him, and, and he recites this passage from that, that section. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. There's that mention of that remnant. Now if by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. 
What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. Those God, God saved did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. That, that's kind of what God told, that's, that is what God told the prophets as they called him. You're going to go, you're going to speak to the nation, and they're not going to hear you. To this day, he says, verse 9, and David says, let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. There's this picture of the children of Israel, by and large, the Jews, rejecting God, having ears that don't want to hear, eyes that don't want to see, hardened to the spirit of God and the move of God. And that's a a picture of where they were. But he uses this this, uh, reminder of Elijah when Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 others who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. There's 7,000 other faithful that he called the remnant. And then he lets them know that even to this day, there, there's a remnant. So God, God is saying, even though, even though as a nation as a whole, there was a rejection of the gospel, there are still those who are faithful. Even today, even though by and large the, the, the Jews have rejected the gospel, there still is a faithful remnant, those who've received Christ and accepted him. That hardening of the nation, something God allowed them to do, and it, it was, it, it's, what he's trying to say in chapter 11 is it's temporary. He's one day going to release that, and there's going to be a great salvation. Remnant is proof. Number three, by the way, let me just say something about the remnant, remnant there. Um, they were, they were stu- the, the nation as a whole was stubborn and rejected the gospel, but God got through to some of them. Sometimes we have this tendency to look at, we look at the, the Old Testament story of Pharaoh and we talk about God hardening his heart. We say that's not fair, but we looked at how God's grace still penetrates and still works. He's still at work. There's still a remnant. Back in my backyard, I have some, I think they're lilies. I'm not sure what they are. I call them lilies. I, I dig them up all the time and move them. Because they grow like crazy. And I've found this out that if I leave just a little bit under the ground, just a little bit, they're going to come back with a vengeance the next season. Just a little, a little remnant of that lily. I've got this blossom. And that's kind of a picture of the nation of Israel. He has a remnant there. One day it's going to blossom. Number three, the third demonstration or proof that God's not through with Israel. The conversion of the Gentiles is proof that God is not through with Israel. The conversion of the Gentiles, remember Paul took the gospel, it was to the Jew first and then to the Greek and then to the Gentile. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. The book of Romans is written to talk about how God had taken the gospel and given it to the Gentiles by faith. Look at verse 11 with me. I ask then, have they stumbled in order to fail? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, that's the stumbling of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because they rejected the gospel, now the gospel has come to the rest of the world. But look at this. Has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now if their stumbling brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Remember Paul's heart? that his people would come to know Christ? For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Let me just stop right there. Paul says clearly here, 
that, that what God intends is for the Jewish people to see the relationship that the Gentiles have with him and be jealous of that. Can I say it another way? That, that the walk that we would have with the Lord would make them hungry for that. God says, yes, the, God, the gospel did go to the Gentiles, but you Jews are supposed to see that, that incredible privilege that they have now that they belong in the family of God. To be zealous, to be jealous of that. I'm sorry, jealous of that. To Some translations say to provoke the Jews to accept the gospel. God gave the gospel to the Jew first. You read your, old, your New Testament, you read the book of Acts, it started with the Jews. Even when Paul started his ministry, he would go from town to town, he would go to the synagogue first and, and he'd get kicked out and rejected and then the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Because of their rejection, the gospel came to us and then he says, now the gospel is with the Gentile world, now the Jews are to see that and they're to, to want to come to know him. I thought about the, the phrase that Paul uses in the book of 2 Corinthians, that we're a, a sweet aroma we as, as believers are to be a sweet aroma. I just want to look at that. I didn't plan on this, but I think it's chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians. There it is, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved. Isn't that great? He says in Romans the Gentile world is to be this, this light that the Jews wanted because they weren't the light that they were supposed to be. And it's a reminder to us that as followers of Christ, we're to be a light to the rest of the world. That they should want what we have. So Paul's third proof there is that the gospel was received and accepted by the Gentiles. Number four, the patriarchs were proof that God is not through with Israel. The patriarchs, who are those guys? Let's look at this passage. Even though not mentioned specifically, they're implied in this passage. Look at verse 16. If, now, if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, through a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not brag that you are better than those branches. Let me just stop right there and say that most scholars believe that that root is referring back to Abraham, most conservative scholars. So when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the patriarchs. So he's saying that that original tree, that original, the, the root that God planted in the patriarchs, we've, we've now been grafted in. Where did I stop reading? Verse 18. Yeah, do, not, do not brag, do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. By the way, you need to understand this is not about salvation. This is a, a picture of, of uh, the gospel for the Jews first and then the Gentiles being grafted into this tree, the family of God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, verse 21, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you if you remain in his, likeness, in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they... 
If they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from the native olive, wild olive and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, folks, that's about three sermons right there, okay, in that one section of Scripture. But let me just say this. What God is saying is that that original root in the patriarchs, that original olive tree, the branches cut off are the, the, the people of Israel who rejected it. And we were grafted into that tree. And he says, if we as wild could be grafted into that tree, how much more one day when God brings all the Jews to himself will they be grafted back into that tree? The patriarchs are a, a, a form of first fruits. He uses the picture of a, of a batch of dough, the leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. Uh, he, he's saying with the patriarchs, God started a work there, and he's going to complete it with the Jews. So that's my sermon for that section right there. There's much more to say about that. I, I was thinking about my own heritage and how my grandparents on both sides we're not perfect people, but they'd come to know Christ as their Savior. And, and how my parents came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And, and, and I, I think about that family tree, and I think about the root of the gospel in the, the lives of my parents. And I got, to, I got to be a part of that. Now, here's the thing. I, I am not a follower of Christ just because I'm in that tree. Does that make sense? Because I'm in that family tree? My grandparents had to make the decision to accept Christ my parents had to make the decision to accept Christ. I had to make the decision, but I kind of see the same picture here. God started it, and he's, he's ready to, Kevin, he's ready to graft you into that tree. Not just the family tree, but the, tree, the family tree of faith. That helps me understand that passage. Now, let's get to the heart of what I think we need to take home today. And it's in verse 25 through 31. God's person and work are proof that he's not through with Israel. Remember we talked about Jesus Christ, we, we, we said, there's, we, we, we studied the person and the work of Christ, the person, who he is, the work of Christ, what he's done. If you go study in a school of theology, you take a class, and it's, it's called the person and work of Christ, and you study who he is, that he is God in, God in the flesh, part of the Trinity, and then you, you study what he did, he died and rose again. That's the person and work. We're going to look at the person and work of the Father here. The verse 25 so that you will be not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Let's just stop right there. By the way, he mentions this. I believe chapter 11 is a, a prophetic event speaking of when the children of Israel uh, at the second coming of Christ as a whole nation, not everyone, but the, but the majority will come to know Christ by faith. And, and some people study prophecy for the sake of studying prophecy. I, I like what verse 25 there, there says, don't be proud and conceited and puffed up about this. I'm not talking about the future so you can say, I know what's going to happen. I'm talking about what God's going to do with Israel so you can be humbled by what he's doing with you. Letter A, God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. A partial hardening, the nation rejecting the gospel until the time has come for Israel, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Whatever that number is, when God is through, when God has brought the full number of Gentiles to, to fruition, as many people as he desires and in his perfect plan for eternity, 
That's when he will say it's time now for Jesus to come back. And I believe that, that he's going to, first of all, come for his church, and we'll be caught up with him, as the Bible says, and then there'll be a time of tribulation, then he'll come with his church and usher in the millennial kingdom. And at that time, somewhere in there is when this, this fullness will have come, and it'll be time for the, the Jews to whole scale receive Christ as Savior. When this present age that we're living in, I'll say it this way, has run its course, God's going to bring it all about, and the nation of Israel the majority will come to know Christ as Savior. God's timing is always perfect. Did you ever say, God, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The early church used to say, used to say Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, even now. God's timing is always perfect. I was thinking about a, a sister church of ours in Houston, Sagemont Church. They're the, the church that... that uh, really was our model to build debt-free. We kind of followed the way they did it. And, and there was a time when they were ready to build a new worship center, and, and they just couldn't get everything to come together and plans, and nothing was working, and they were ready. They had the money. They just couldn't get all the city stuff and all the details to come together. And they were just ready to build, and they were so frustrated. They said, God, what are you waiting for? And some floods came to Houston. And that area of Houston flooded, and they discovered that where they were going to build their worship center would have been underwater. And then everything came together, and they were able to build. By the way, they built it up high. It became one of the highest parts of that part of town where people went for refuge when it flooded. So you, you might be from one perspective saying, God, why, why can't we get this building built? What's, what's with your timing? And God is saying, I, I've got it all together. Don't worry. Because pretty soon there's going to be a flood, and you're going to want to make some changes, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you the grief. God's timing is always perfect. The second issue of the person and work of Christ, that a person and work of God that, that are proof he's not through, is God's promises. Let it be God's promises are true. God's promises are true. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The liberator, the deliverer will come from Zion, the heavenly Zion, and, and he will turn away godlessness from Jacob. God's promises are true. I love that. All Israel will be saved. Again, that, that's not, it's not going to be a blanket, everybody automatically, but, but the majority, those who place their faith in Christ and, and repent, will be saved. That, that, that turning to Christ will be a prerequisite for the, the final second coming. God's promises are true. Cling to that. I have places in my Bible that are underlined and highlighted promises where God, God has promised something, and, and I, I say, God, I'm clinging to you for that. And then other places where they're highlighted, and I've, I've said, God, I, I was clinging to you, and now you've been faithful, and, and you've shown up, and I thank you for that. God is faithful. His promises are always true. He says, if you will call on the name of the Lord, we looked at it last time, right? You will be saved. Whenever I lead a person to Christ, I usually ask them to read that verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I said, read that. Did you call on him? And they say, yes. I said, according to God's promise in his word, are you saved? Not do you feel better? Not have you changed? Not what do you think? But according to God's promise in his word, his promises are always true. Folks, if he says that it's going to happen, he says all Israel will be saved. Lots of folks make promises they don't deliver on. We're human, right? Think about McDonald's promise. The Happy Meal. <laughs> I'll take my kids to McDonald's and this will fix them. 
We'll get a, we'll get a happy meal. We tried that, didn't work. Can you imagine they're promising happiness in a box? Let's name it the happy meal. God promises his faithfulness in his word, and he's always true. His promises are true. Thirdly, God's covenant is irrevocable. God's covenant is irrevocable. Look at verse 27. And this will be my covenant with them, and when I will take away their sins... Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. It goes back to that, the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaacs, and Jacob. This covenant is irrevocable. I mentioned the person and work of God. One of the reasons his covenant is irrevocable is because of who he is. He doesn't change. We'll talk about that, that in just a minute. His covenants are always faithful. When I was... When our kids were little, we lived in Arlington, Texas, and uh, got seasons passes to Six Flags. And with that, you get a parking pass. And man, we found that was one of the best, the best uh, investments we could make because we could just drive up and hang out for an hour or two and leave. It was wonderful. And, and sometimes we would promise our kids that we're going to take them to Six Flags, and, and uh, they would count on it. You know why? Because I'm their dad. I love them. Because Six Flags was just a few miles from the house. And I had in my, in my possession that little card with our picture on it that said we had a season's pass. They knew that when I said we're going to Six Flags, it was going to happen. You know why? Because of who I was and because of what I possessed. I possessed the pass. God says to us, his covenant is irrevocable. Fourth thing, God's nature is unchanging. His nature is unchanging. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable in verse 29, unchanging. He will not go back on his nature. He will not go against who he is. Somebody said, is there anything God cannot do? There's a good trivia question for you. You can debate that. We used to debate it all the time. Somebody said, well, there's one thing God cannot do. God cannot be inconsistent with who he is. He's always going to be faithful. He's always going to act in accordance with who he is. I love that. His nature is unchanging. You know how God's going to act? As he's always acted. You know why? It's because of who he is. Yesterday we were ready to get out of the house and we're going to go. I don't remember what we were getting out for, but I said, I'll take my dog with me. So I said, Trapper, come on and put the, the collar and chain on him. Took him out to my truck. And man, his nose hit the ground. We walked out the front door. He was, he, he was on the scent of something. And I real quick opened the door and he jumped in the cab of the, the truck. And he, his eyes finally locked in on what he saw. It was a black cat next door. And, and my dog almost went through the window on the passenger side of my truck to get to that cat. So I got in there and started, I rolled the window down about that much, and he stuck his head outside that one. And the old cat was just over there. Sometimes I just want to just let the dog go, you know? <laughs> you know why my dog Trapper does that? Newsflash. He's a dog. That's what dogs do. I, could have, I can do everything I want to do training that dog not to run after a cat. But you know what? It's just, it's just who he is. He's always going to do it. I can try to explain away everything about God I want, but he's always going to do what he does because he's God. His nature is unchanging. 
Next truth of his character, his person and work. His grace is sufficient. Letter E, God's grace is sufficient. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. Wasn't that great? So they too now have disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all the disobedience so that he may have mercy on us all. Did you see the word mercy in there? That's grace. Mercy. Grace. We've received mercy. They've received mercy. God's grace is sufficient. Now, some people have looked at this passage and said that that Israel's going to be saved just because they're Israel. And I I contend that this passage still talks about the grace of God and the need to, to, to respond to that grace. I love what John Stott says about this. He gives this analogy of the, of the Muslim world and the Koran. He says the repeated promises of the Koran of forgiveness of a compassionate and merciful Allah are all made to the meritorious, to those whose merits have been weighed in Allah's scales. Whereas our gospel is the good news of mercy to the undeserving. I love what he says this. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. Isn't that good? In Islam, basically, the, the, the formula is the, your, what you do is going to be weighed in the scales. And if you, if you have more good than bad, then, then Allah will be merciful. The God of Scripture is different. He's the God of the cross. Because I'll tell you what, when we're weighed in the scales, there's nothing we can do. Nothing. All of my righteousness, what is, is what? Filthy rags. God's grace is sufficient. It's all about grace. And then lastly, God's wisdom is unquestionable. I love that he closes with this hymn of praise in verse 33 through 36. And the, when I first started studying this chapter, reading through, I, I usually try to read through several times, and, and I came to the, to the end of the chapter the first time, and I, I made a note of that. That's good. And I went back and I read some more. The more I studied this passage, the more confusing it got. And then I love to get to verse 33 through 36. That's good. And then I read it again. I'm just, I thought I had this, but maybe I don't. And I get to verse 33. And I say, oh, God, that's so good. And then I realize God put 33 to 36 for people like me who can say, even though I don't have all the details, even though I can't figure it all out, God's still faithful. He's true. And I can praise him anyway. So let's look at God's unsearchable, unquestionable wisdom. Oh, verse 33, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Those of you who want to figure him out, memorize verse 33. You want to find out what God's doing? Look at verse 33. You can't. For who has known the mind of our Lord, the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever first given him? Or has it to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God's wisdom is un questionable. Someone said Paul's theology of chapter 11 breaks out into a doxology. Been around long enough in church that doxology is that what you close with that hymn of praise. We used to sing when I was a kid, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's that doxology. This theology that he presents us with, even though we can't be sure of all the time and the details, and let me tell you, conservative scholars that I, that I read and I follow and I trust are, are 
are not agreeing on every detail of that, but they agree on this part. God's wisdom is beyond ours. It's unsearchable, and we can't question it. I want to close with four reminders for us, and I'm going back to verse 25 through 27 to do this. I think we need to say these four things as followers of Christ to be reminded of this. Number one, or letter A, Jews and Gentiles are both saved the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation, doesn't matter what age it is, what era it is, it's, it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't get to heaven by being a good person any more than the Jewish people could get to heaven with all their privileges and all they had done. You can't. It's by faith, by grace through faith. The second truth here that I remind her I want us to leave with is there is no salvation apart from repentance. There is no salvation apart from repentance. There's this phrase that says God will turn away from godlessness. And I didn't make a note exactly which verse it was in. Anybody find it for me? 26. There it is. Thank you. The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness or ungodliness from Jacob. Here's what this reminder is. For for Israel to come to Christ, they're going to have to repent of their sin. They're going to have to turn from their sin. They're going to have to turn from trusting in themselves. We need to be reminded of that. There's no salvation apart from repentance. We stress grace, faith. Yes, we stress that. Yes, we stress it. The call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's what Paul said in the last chapter we looked at. But it comes when a person is willing to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. You got to do that. Repentance is essential. The third thing, forgiveness of sin is the primary need of every person. Forgiveness of sin is the primary need of every person. Verse 27, this is... This will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. The cross, the cross dealt with our sin. That tells me that it was necessary. It tells me that the primary need of my life was to have somebody deal with my sin. That's why Jesus came to the cross. The last reminder and I've already said it, but I'm saying it again here. The forgiveness of sin is based on God's covenant provision through Jesus Christ. The cross, that covenant he mentions, I think alludes to Jeremiah 31, this new covenant where we'll write his law on our hearts. God's not through with Israel. God's not through with us. Have you noticed that every week at the end of our worship service, we have a call to commitment? Because God's not through with us. Statistics tell us that every day in America, 10 people die of drowning, unintentional drowning. It's the fifth highest cause of of death unintentional death in America. The journal 
of the U.S. Coast Guard has come up with something that they call the instinctive drowning response. I was not aware of all this. This is fascinating. See, I watch movies like you do, and when somebody's drowning, what are they doing? They're screaming, they're waving their arms, and somebody goes and rescues them. They shared five instinctive responses to the instinctive drowning response or characteristics of it. Number one, except in rare cases, drowning people are physically unable to call for help. That's because we're designed to breathe first and speak later. Drowning people can't stay above the water long enough for them to exhale and inhale or call for help. Drowning people cannot wave for help. They are forced to extend their arms laterally and press down on the water's surface. The fourth characteristic of this response, drowning people cannot voluntarily move toward a rescuer or reach out for a piece of rescue equipment. Number five, unless rescued by a trained lifeguard, drowning people can only struggle on the surface of the water for 20 to 60 seconds before sinking. The Coast Guard says the drowning response is triggered by a host of autonomic nervous system responses. In other words, Drowning is completely involuntary. These responses are involuntary, unlearned, and unavoidable. A person that's drowning needs to be rescued. And they may not know how to call for help. They may not be able to call for help. But the Bible is so clear Because God so loved us, he sent the rescuer. He sent the rescuer. Are you drowning today spiritually? He's here to rescue you. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and today you think relationally, emotionally, maybe financially you're drowning. He's here for you to lay your burdens at his feet. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to invite you to come. Maybe you need to come and kneel at these steps and make that your altar of surrender. We pray every week that these steps would not just be steps. They would be a place where people could lay down their burdens, where people could lay down their sin and say, Lord, I'm I'm asking your forgiveness. We pray that that would be this place. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you need to do that today. Maybe you're you're a person who says, you know, I, I need rescuing because I'm drowning And I need Christ as my Savior. After I pray, if you would come, we'll help you with a commitment to commit your life to Christ. Let's pray together.